Weirdo bookworms, unite. We want to share our love of genre fiction with you. Some readers out there may look down on you for your love of horror, sci-fi, and fantasy, but not us. So stop by as we discuss what we've been reading. Hi, genre junkies. It's Sandra. And it's Scott. So this is a very fun episode we have planned for you tonight. We are going to discuss a sequel to a book that we read a couple of years ago now, three years ago? I think it was two years ago, back in 2018. 2018. And we interviewed the author back back in the day. And now with the new book being released the same day as this episode, we were fortunate enough to have the author back with us again. So look forward to a really great return interview with B.A. Williamson, the author of today's book, The Fantastical Exploits of Gwendolyn Gray. Uh, Let's see, I was gonna suggest a roundtable, but you know what? Basically, all we do is play Animal Crossing. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, no, I've actually, I will say I've been reading quite a bit because I've been laid up with a back injury. So um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, you've blasted through a few books. Yeah, I've read um, uh, Stephen King. I've read a Sherry Priest. And I've watched a few horror movies, some better than others. Um, what about you, Scott? Just it's just Animal Crossing all the time. It has been Animal Crossing all the time. <laughs> I uh, I I made the mistake of looking at my Nintendo Switch profile, and I have logged 140 hours in Animal Crossing. What is wrong with me? And you know what's funny? What's funny, listeners? readers at home i do want to i do want this to be on the air call me out huh i want my bragging rights so many moons ago when animal crossing came out the original i liked it and i had a a good time playing it on the ds well the original was on the gamecube gamecube yeah okay i shouldn't say original the original handheld version yes and i really enjoyed it and um i don't play a lot of games because i tend to get frustrated and i tend to get bored um and i just am like i could be reading or i could be watching a horror movie or i could be going for a run right now so um I kind of, you know, very, very casually pick up a video game. But I really wanted to play Animal Crossing ever since it was announced. And I've been excited and, you know, reading up on it and, you know, getting pumped and telling Scott like, oh, look at this. And and you're going to be able to do this thing. and It's going to look like that. And look how cute this is. And he was like, yeah, I'm just I'm just not interested. Just not interested. (laughs) So I was like, no, no, I'm really psyched. And so I got it. And I had the game for maybe a week. And then Scott was like, oh, can I like play it can i like play it and well 140 hours later yeah (laughs) he was slow to adapt on this video game and i was the fast one well i played the version on the ds i played the version on the gamecube and and in both of those cases it just bounced right off of me it just didn't really do it for me Mm. uh but something about what they did this time around just really works for me it could be it could be the fact that it's a it's a huge stress reliever for me it's just very relaxing i find myself turning on the game and i'll just i will just literally run around my island for five minutes just to kind of you know release a little bit of tension i don't even do anything i just run around i'm like all right cool i'm happy now i got to live on my island for five minutes it's so cute and it's creative and it's fun and it's just like i don't know it's just harmless like there's just nothing bad there's nothing bad that happens in it except for red 
the shady art dealer. Yes, you got to watch out for him. Sandra's scared of red. Well, I don't want to be buying fake art. That's not. That's a lot of bells. It is a lot of bells. He 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 upcharges quite a bit for everything. Yeah, but it, anything to make Blathy happy. If I can make Blathy happy at the museum, I'll do it. So as we spoke about, we are interviewing B.A. Williamson, and that will be in between uh, the spoiler and uh, spoiler free and spoiler section. But since this is a sequel, I I really think you got to read the first one. I, 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 I mean, it's maybe not a have to. I don't think it's as much of a have to as the last sequel that we read. Yeah. Um, where you just you absolutely would not be able to enjoy it without reading the first book. I think that this kind of fits somewhere in between. But I, 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 we love The Marvelous Adventures of Gwendolyn Gray, the first book in the series. And so you should just read it. <laughs> Just, just read it. Just read it. Um, we do love it. And we love B.A. Williamson. And we love talking to him and talking about these books. So uh, these are middle grade books. So the first book is called The Marvelous Adventures of Gwendolyn Gray. So that's where we first meet Gwendolyn. And uh, uh, she is a 13 year old. She's girl. 12 in the first book. She's 12. That, oh, my gosh, you're right. She's 12. And she comes from a world that is very gray and without any imagination at all. Um, And she goes on an adventure and she learns a lot about herself and the world and creativity and the power of imagination and books. And it's pretty inspiring. And we were inspired by it. Um, Definitely the type of middle grade that, you know, we always like to say good books can be enjoyed by like readers at any age, really. Um, And it's great for middle school age kids which we've known some that have read this and really loved it it's great for adults too because it's got sort of a a dry wryness as well in the way he tells the story um lots of easter eggs pop culture and literature things and just a lot of charm and a lot of spirit and i would say that with this novel all of that is just really amplified Agreed. I, I, you know, we made a lot of similes when we read Marvelous Adventures, and I think a lot of those similes stand up, and there's some new ones that I'd like to bring to the table. This second book gives me kind of uh, Golden Compass vibes. Okay. There's kind of a, 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 a kind of like a growing up still still you know innocent and plucky but you know having to deal with some more adult ideas and concepts i i get a lot of that from from this second book yeah um the character is growing up and we are too and we're kind of growing with her right and seeing that there's more than the world you know seeing that there's diversity and differences and different ways to live life and to be um from the sheltered you know confines and you know for so many people especially in your adolescence you get like a taste of that and it becomes like really addictive because you just want to know it's like just part of being a curious human mind is you want to just grow and absorb things and see what else is out there so i guess scott what was your uh experience score well this is uh (laughs) i read this book in less than a day over the course of two days same uh i i have to put this as as an obsession for me oh 
I love Gwendolyn so much. I was so excited to, you know, read her further adventures. I was really excited going into it. I was I was getting really pumped for it. So I came into this book kind of with an obsession level and it held that I I blasted through it. I am going to be thinking about it. I'm going to be rereading it. It's got a lot of rereadability. Um, For me, I'm going to put it at solid page turner status. Um, It read very quickly in just the right way. Like I really wanted to keep going and keep enjoying the story. And I'm very, very impressed with how much BA was able to fit into a book that is not very long, but it didn't feel rushed. It didn't feel rushed at all. It, it goes by at a very fast clip. This book is a fair amount larger than the first book. It still comes in at just under 400 pages, though. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, um, you know, it's like, yeah, in the scheme of things, it's not a crazy long book, but... But there's a lot of there's a lot of themes and concepts that he approaches and, and expands upon really well in that less than 400 pages. Yes, I agree. Uh, so I was very, very impressed with uh, not only just how he wrote this book with fitting so much in there, but uh, I really loved the way his writing has evolved. And I think that it just goes with the nature of exploring different worlds. I mean, I have to say, I I liken him to the Harry Potter series in a way. Now, we only have two books so far in this, but where it kind of grows with the reader. Right. And he grows as a writer in writing it. Um, that said, I think that this series started at a stronger place than even Sorcerer's Stone did. And so I'm 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 even more excited to see how good this was and I can't wait for what's next. Yeah, and it's yeah, because it's gonna get more fleshed out the more we meet the characters and the more we get to know them. And then just like I said too, the nature of the worlds that she visits, um, just it like it lends itself to him becoming a stronger writer too. <laughs> because it's like it, it, all these places she visits are so vastly different and so it needs to have a feel and it needs to have a tone that's completely its own thing from the last place we were so so for those who are not familiar this is a portal fantasy uh kind of an interdimensional fantasy uh with themes of dystopianism uh themes of well not themes of the first book is straight up steampunk uh, in this one, you've got fairies and nature, and you've got <laughs> people who listened to my last episode. One of my biggest just cracks, which is when it when it comes to having a giant library full of books. I did not know what you meant by your biggest cracks. Okay, yeah, you mean like something addictive? Yeah, <laughs> like <Yes>. a trope. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. it's your reader crack. <laughs> yeah, it's my reader crack. Yeah. I, I I love that theme. I love I love that imagery, yeah. and it's handled really well in this book. So I ag- I agree with you. Creating a a universe, a world building with all of these different genres within it uh, allows him to explore his chops and explore to as far as he wants to different writing styles and different worlds and different plots. I. <laughs> Why? It just made me laugh so hard that you said it was your biggest crack. <laughs> I do want to cry. That just struck me as so funny. I had no idea what you were talking about. Oh. <laughs> oh, we've been caged together too long. We've been caged together too long. I'm glad you mentioned the Fae. 
Uh, that was huge for me. That was, oh, love, love, love the Fae. Love the world of Fae. Love learning and exploring and delving into Fae, Fadum, uh, Fae stories. And uh, I I just really appreciate that he went there and he took it there. And he uh, used a lot of the wonderful things that we know about the Fae. And he also put his own spin on it quite a bit. So cool. And when you're talking about Fae worlds, you you have to have really luscious prose. You do. You have to describe the clothes and the food and the the nature and everything. And I, I was so happy with how B.A. talked about the Fae. I knew as soon as I got to the parts with the Fae that this book was going to be right up your alley. I knew you were going to love it because of that, because it's handled very, very well. It's a lot of fun. The characters are are eerie and alien and hysterical. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they're they're tricky and they're not human. But at the same time, you know, like Fae can't like lie. You know, like it's just all all the right stuff. All the right stuff. All the right fame moves. Um, And I guess we should probably get ready to talk about the interview and the spoilers. Yes. But so we'll give it our uh, appeal score. So I... I I am going to give this no less than a mass appeal book. I think especially the fact that it is a middle grade book. I I think that while appropriate for middle grade, it's great for adults too. I have so much fun with this series and so much fun with these characters. And this book in particular goes into some very adult themes that start at about Gwendolyn's age of 12 and 13 and is handled so strongly and yet delicately that it it really meant a lot to me to see that perspective from a very real place. And so I think that this is for the masses. I think everyone should be reading the reading the stories of Gwendolyn Gray. Yeah, I think that's really well put. Um, I'm right there with you. I, I think that these books have a mass appeal. And I think that a lot of uh, people who aren't readers would be just really charmed and really taken with it. And it's also, you know, of course, if you are a reader, I think you're going to absolutely love it because it's got that wonderful exploration of stories and great characters and uh, beautiful settings. But I, I think that it's a really good gateway series for people that aren't into reading to. I think it would be uh, a really great introduction to fantasy and to reading in general. Uh, B.A. has this wonderful way of treating Gwendolyn as such a fully dimensional person. And he's not really into a whole bunch of dumb old gender stuff. He's not into, you know, status quo. He's into diversity. He's into letting these individuals shine. And it's really, really cool. And he also touches on mental health in this book in such a beautiful and really personally poignant way, too. Agreed. So I want to go into our interview with B.A. Williamson. We're going to go right into that. And after After that, we will meet you for some spoilers. You know, you are our very first guest. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, true story. You are our very first guest, and we've we've had you know, we've had many other wonderful people since, but you know, you're it's very special to us that that we get to talk to you again today. Yeah, we get one first guest. (laughs) We get one first time. Well, hey, you were my first podcast I've been on, so. 
Oh my gosh, it's perfect. It's come full circle. And look at us all now. Coming back together. <laughs> the gang. The gang. Getting the band back together. And we and we finally got to, you know, see Gwendolyn Gray and see what what's what's next for her in this journey. Yeah, what the heck this girl's <laughs> yeah. been up to. Speaking of getting the gang back together. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, cool. Scott, why don't you kick us off? Okay, so the the first book, The Marvelous Adventures of Gwendolyn Gray, was a great title for a story. What inspired you to name this book the Fantabulous uh, or the <laughs> <laughs> Fantastical? It's it's early. The Fantastical Exploits. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, I definitely, you know, I like to mirror a lot, as you can see by the cover and everything. And so I definitely wanted a similar structure to the title. And, you know, once I had the idea of all the fairies coming in and stuff, um, it just, you know, fantasy, fantastic, it just wasn't quite enough to describe it. So I went with fantastical and then I don't know where exploits came from, but it just it fit really nicely. I like so. exploits. I like exploits. It sounds um, I don't know. It like evokes like adventure and I don't know. It's kind of a danger too. Yeah. So now I'm trying to come up with more titles and <laughs> trying not to stretch the English language too much, where it sounds like I just used a thesaurus. <laughs> nice. I, I think I think it's kind of fun to just I think going into a thesaurus and finding different words is actually kind of a fun way to do it. Yeah, it's a blast. <laughs> oh yeah, I have a giant like two column spreadsheet where I play around with matching words together. Nice. <laughs> it's like a it's like a random number generator just spits out a title. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like that. I kind of like reading between the lines there. It sounds like there will be more books. Yeah, I mean, everything is based on sales, but my yeah. plan is, you know, that this was kind of the first half of the series, and then I'm currently working on the second half of the series, which would be another two books. <gasps> well, that's really good, because, I mean, I need I need some more. I need some things here. <laughs> I need some more time with Gwendolyn. Yeah, well, you know, I'll, I'll talk at the end and give you some teasers. Ooh, okay. So I am a huge fan of the Fae, and you seem to do a lot of research on Fae stories for this novel. What made you want to bring the Fae into Fantastical Exploits? I, I love fairies. I love A Midsummer Night's Dream. I think a lot of the uh, the DNA of that came from Neil Gaiman's issue of The Sandman, where uh, the King of Dreams has made a, a bargain with Shakespeare that he'll write him two plays. And the first one is Midsummer Night's Dream. And so the King of Dreams brings the fairy court to watch Shakespeare's first performance of Midsummer Night's Dream. And so the real Oberon and Titania are there watching it. And like that just stuck with me. Um, and so I really wanted to be able to play in that world. And, you know, I'd done dystopia and steampunk. And I, so I really wanted to dip into fantasy a lot. And that's just what really spoke to me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, and there's some great Easter eggs throughout this book, um, as you kind of put in the afterward, including some great Shakespearean ones, too. So that was um, that was really, really cool. And it could also, you know, maybe some of the readers turn them on to some different books if they like this one. Maybe they haven't dipped a toe into the bard yet. Yeah. As a, you know, an actor and a director in my spare time, you know, what spare time I have. Uh, right. I got all, I have all these Shakespeare quotes tucked away way in my head. So I just mostly try to amuse myself while writing and dropping in Easter eggs. <laughs> well, it amuses us too. We're huge Shakespeare fans. So we were we were pleased. 
a whole lot of Disney Easter eggs as well, I might add. Right. That came off unintentionally at first until I looked at the first three chapters I'd written and was like, there are a whole lot of Disney tropes in here. So I went through and added a couple intentionally. <laughs> oh, cute. Yeah, there was and some other literary ones, too. Very, very fun. That's always super exciting if you get the reference. And then if not, you know, it kind of flags something in your mind and you're, you're like, what, what's that about? And then it kind of launches you down a rabbit hole. So. I think that's really yeah. Cool. I have a uh, like a two sentence direct quote from Anne of Green Gables, and I had to assure my publisher that it was in the public domain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Anne, another another redheaded little lady that we love. That is one I missed. I'm gonna have to dig through and find that one. Oh, that's exciting. You have to do a reread then. I I will definitely be doing a reread. Speaking of it's in a, uh, a conversation she has with Sparrow, I'll tell you that much. Okay. <gasps> okay. Okay. Um, speaking of our our little redheaded lass, what was it like as the author to let Gwendolyn grow up a little bit more in this novel? It was very interesting and. I was once again reminded of the experience Gwendolyn has with watching your ideas um, sort of grow past you and do their own thing. And, you know, um, she was, she had definitely had a moment in the first book when she first got back from talk. And that is where she seemed to pick up when I started writing the beginning of this book. And, you know, um, originally this book was book one and book one was just really, really long and no one wanted to publish it. So I fixed that problem. And so I had probably half of this book already done and the spine of it. But when I went back to see, um, to find a new starting point, she just was really suffering. And it wasn't long before I was like, oh, oh, she's, she's depressed and has some, some post-traumatic stress going on here. And then I was like, well, that's perfectly reasonable given that she was in life-threatening situations and people were dying and there were monsters. Mm -hmm. And that just really influenced um, what she was doing and what she was going through. And, um, and that started speaking to me and my experiences a little bit was, so it was really interesting in that her experiences were speaking to me and informing that rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so she started growing up and struggling more and it's always really, it's really interesting when I look at the end of this book and compare it to where she starts in the first book with badger tea parties and things. Mm -hmm. And even though it's only been... Well, you know, it's been a few weeks or however long it might have been with the fairies and whatnot, but she is just almost a totally different person. She's it's she's just grown so far over the course of these books. And I mean, I remember from from way back when, when I was around that age, too, it is almost kind of overnight that you do change and you kind of start to you get those like first triggering experiences of adolescence. And then you're like, oh, well, yeah, this is what I am now. This is what makes sense to me now. Yes, from fifth to sixth grade, there is not a lot of change. I've taught, you know, five through eight. And from fifth to sixth grade, there's not much of a difference. But man, from sixth to seventh grade, they will be completely different children. <laughs> sixth grade changes you. <laughs> right. And the start of seventh grade, when they start noticing that other people are around them and are like independent functioning people who have thoughts and might also be noticing them back... <laughs> then everything shifts. I really appreciated that you just touched on the mental health aspects of this book. That was something that really meant a lot to me and really stood out. And um, I think it's really cool that a lot of authors are getting braver talking about mental health issues with their characters. 
Yes, and I just uh, I did a bo- I just did a blog post over on uh, Deborah J. Ross's blog about uh, being a bipolar writer, and so that definitely started coming through as I was writing this. She was depressed, and then got in with the fairies, and it really lent itself to her going the exact opposite direction and having this mania. And it made more sense to me that she would be bipolar rather than just suffer from depression because she's always been this really excited, energetic character. And so now she kind of has both those colors that she's working with. And I really wanted to try to keep that as literal as possible. Um, It's not a metaphor. She is literally uh, bipolar, uh, mildly. And I have to deal with that slightly metaphorically just because, you know, they don't have uh, diagnostic manuals and therapists in fairyland very much. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's it. Exactly. And it's almost, um, oh, my gosh, it just it fits so much just putting it into that lens and into that context as well. And that um, that's something that really touched me because I'm also bipolar. So that was just really, really cool. I was like, I see you, Gwendolyn. I see you, girl. We're the same. Right. And the the interesting thing is that it starts out just painting it as something like, well, you know, this is an effect the fairies are having on you and it's a problem with you being here. And then they slowly realize that, no, this is something that's inside of you and being here is just making it worse. It's a trigger. And then so all the triggers and experiences she has, those are I mean, yeah, as I'm sure you noticed, that's that's what it's like. Mm-hmm. And then all of the coping strategies that I have her go through are all authentic coping strategies. And I was really excited to include that because you don't see that in a fantasy context a lot. Uh, in speculative fiction, there's not a whole lot of mental health treatment, especially in fantasy as opposed to sci-fi. And you also don't see it a lot in middle grade. Mm-hmm. Um, but I see that when I work with middle schoolers, there's a lot of depression and anxiety, particularly, um, that they're going through. And we now have kind of the awareness to look for that. Um, but a lot of times they aren't taken seriously because people are like, well, you're just kids, but their problems are as big to them as ours, our to us. Yeah. Oh, 100, 110% and way more confusing too. And this is just such a nice framework that just, um, it just really fit Gwendolyn's character and the story so well. So my, my hat's off to you, sir. That was so well done. Well, thank you. I have to say, I think my favorite moment um, is at the end, and I I won't give too many spoilers, but uh, the very last time that um, Kaitane appears to her um, is probably what gets me the most towards the end there. Oh, yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. So Gwendolyn and Sparrow's relationship really grows a lot in this book. How did you approach Gwendolyn? going towards that relationship to develop it and and have it become more adult? Um, I just tried to kind of approach it honestly. And I'm always amazed to see, you know, how much it grows and how much depth there is even like, and this book is longer than the other one, but to me, it still feels like it goes so fast and they have so little time together to develop that. Um, But it just means that, you know, every conversation they have has to kind of have that meaning. And it just I just had those characters in place and these were the experiences they were going through. 
And it all just developed from there um, just by putting them in a room together and having them talk to each other. And they have a lot to talk about and a lot to work through because it's a pretty unique situation that they have. And even they're not exactly sure how it all works. And so I found it, I honestly found it fun to play with that and see the arguments that they would get into um, over their relationship and situation. And they're still trying to figure out what a relationship even is. Um, and it's it's not like this puppy love crush anymore, but they still don't really know what it kind of means to be in that relationship. They just know that they really like each other. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. No, it felt very um, felt very organic. And I do agree. It's like uh, nothing about it felt rushed to me either as a reader. I felt like it just it took a really natural course, their relationship. Um, so in this book, we also get an introduction of a character who I absolutely love, Syria. Talk to me a little bit about what inspired Syria. Absolutely my favorite new character in the book. Yay! Um, and, and one of my favorites in the series. I was just, I was struck one day by the random realization, you know, as one does, that if you look at stories where you have these mentor figures in the hero's journey, they're almost exclusively male, mm. you know, from like Yoda, Obi-Wan, uh, Brahm and the Aragon series, Gandalf. Uh, I was like, you never really see that female mentor. And then I was like, oh, I'm in a position to do that. <laughs> so I could, and what a great twist that would be if she comes back and then the dialogue just started flowing. She's like, oh, well, yeah, of course they would tell stories and think that I'm a male. And like that attitude, that like chip on her shoulder just immediately kind of unfolded what the rest of that character would be like. Oh, perfect. No, she, I'm kind of like downplaying it, but I mean, like I, I loved Syria. She's definitely, definitely my favorite, maybe favorite character in the series now. Um, I thought she was so cool. She's really witty and dry too, which I super appreciated. And, um, She's like, she's kind of a refugee in this world as well. She was a great addition and a good mentor too. She's not perfect. She doesn't have absolutely all the answers, but she's a good, um, yeah, she's a good person to guide Gwendolyn. Yes. It's a really interesting mix of she's a steampunk inventor inventing with fairy technology. And at the same time, she's kind of moved past kind of that Victorian sensibility into more of a a flapper sensibility. And the first scene I wrote with her is the one where she, she first meets Gwendolyn. It was her first appearance. And that dialogue just popped on the page like in the first draft, I've barely touched it. And then my real struggle was making every other thing she said live up to her first couple of pages. I was like, oh man, that came out so, like that was just on fire and it it crackles on the page. So how am I going to keep doing that? So there was a lot of research into slang. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah, I I got flapper vibes. I got those flapper vibes. She even has like a little flapper haircut too. Right. Very cute. So if Kaitane is your favorite, Sandra, my favorite would have to be Robin, Puck Robin. I loved the way that you developed and realized that character. Uh, Can you talk about the importance of having them be gender fluid? Sure. It it wasn't honestly a conscious choice so much, you know, just another thing that kind of develops as you start 
writing these scenes and there was just this fairy trickster and the idea that they had these two different names that they tended to go by if you look in Shakespeare Robin Goodfellow and Puck Robin and those you know uh, Robin has these monologues in Shakespeare where they talk about changing shape into like a crab or a stool or whatever. So this didn't seem like much of a stretch. Um, and I think it just came out when um, they, they meet Robin for the training session where she first sees Robin change gender. And um, I think the line is that uh, from Wizard of Oz, people come and go so quickly here. And I was just in love with that. So... <laughs> That's really funny. Um, but yeah, I have some uh, some gender fluid students and I was I, I you know, I think I did look through to try and find places where I could add um various representations as well. Um with Syria it was not a conscious choice at all. It was just a part of her character from the get-go that she was lesbian. Um and you know, it doesn't come into play a lot. It's just it's not like talked up. She doesn't have a love interest in this. It's just that's part of her identity and it comes up every once in a while. I think that's so cool the way that you um, introduce those concepts about gender and sexuality in these books, too, because that is something that, you know, kids are being a lot more vocal about. And it's so nice to put it in this context where, yeah, I mean, like, maybe they have questions if they're not familiar about it. But just kind of like like Gwendolyn does is it's like, okay, so then you learn, maybe you do have some questions, but you just go with it and let them be who they are. Yeah, it's it's not like a salient plot point. It's just, yep, that's who they are. And that's, uh, that's their character. <laughs> well, yeah, and especially coming from Gwendolyn's world where everything's just gray and boring. I mean, it's like change. This is wonderful. <laughs> right. Diversity. Yes. When you were writing Robin's lines <laughs> and, 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 with, with their rhyming schemes, did, did you find that like particularly difficult? And follow up to that, what were their mistakes uh, part of the, the complication or were they written in jokes on, you know, kind of from the very beginning? Um, as for the second part, both. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, a lot of times it was just to be funny and then a couple times it's like, I just need them to say this. So to any writers out there who are tempted to have their characters speak in rhyming verse, just don't, it's, <laughs> it's not, don't, it's not worth it. Stop I now. was kicking myself about, I was like, why did I do this to myself? <laughs> but it just gave them a, a more, just a really unique voice uh, for their character. And it worked because they are, you know, they're fun and tricky and that's the way they choose to speak. And one of the jokes is they're like, I don't have to talk in rhymes. I just do it because I want to and I'm clever. <laughs> and <laughs> first draft, it was all iambic pentameter. And then at some point I chose to make it a uh, rhyming octometer in eight <laughs> syllables instead. But there is a, there's a joke about that from, from Starling that uh, in one point uh, she slips into iambic pentameter instead. <laughs> <laughs> that was 10 syllables, not eight. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, that made me laugh. Right. I chose to leave out uh, jokes about trochees and foots, but <laughs> <laughs> there's the Shakespeare nerd. Yeah, I, I love it. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> um, what has been some of the feedback you've gotten from readers, young and old, about Gwendolyn, uh, especially the first novel and then the second one as well that's uh, really stood out to you? Sure. Um, people really seem to attach to her character um, and really react to how how fully fledged she seems, and they really relate to her, which is great because, yeah, in my head, she's certainly the most realized character um, to the point where 
she'll react in ways that I don't expect, but they're authentic to who she is. Um, and a lot of the feedback I get is about the world building and how much fun people have exploring the worlds I've created, um, which, which feels great because, yeah, I put a whole lot into uh, just describing these places because they're very real and cinematic to me. Um, and I'm a, you know, I'm a very cinematic writer. I'm essentially just describing the movie in my head. Um, and at some point costumes apparently became very important to me and I don't know where that came from. But <laughs> I noticed and, but you know what? I approve. I approve. I, yeah, it was really fun. And suddenly my Pinterest board is just full of like dresses. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, thank heaven for Pinterest. Yeah, I definitely noticed that there was a a ramp up in description in this book that, you know, one of the things that I love about both novels is the way that the narrator breaks the fourth wall and oftentimes says, you know, I could describe this, but for whatever reason, it's better that I don't or it's not worth me describing it or, or whatever the reason may be. But there is a lot more description in the, that book. It sounds like that is that part of part of your growth as an author or was that like a choice that that you made as part of her growth where did that come from um the authorial intrusions are really controversial uh, according to the reviews oh, really you either love it or you don't and it's either your style or it is not <laughs> um but yeah, part of it, I was, I was nervous about some of those where I say something like, you know, I may be good with words, but even I can't describe this. I'm like, I really hope the rest of this backs that statement up <laughs> that I'm good enough with words that this doesn't sound like a brag. Um, but then the funny part is I always do it anyway. It's like, so, you know, I couldn't possibly describe this and then I go ahead and do it. <laughs> so it was, yeah, just having fun. I particularly appreciated the the, the food fake out. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'm glad that played. Do you consider yourself the narrator or is the narrator, like, is the narrator a stand-in for you as the author or is the narrator really its own character? Um, the narrator is, is really their own character with their own voice. Um, and they're British for some reason. Um, <laughs> it's, it's all the, the Douglas Adams and Neil Gaiman and Dr. Who in my brain that, that comes out of there for some reason. Um, but yeah, the narrator is, is really their own character. And, you know, I've, I've kind of probed that internally of, you know, um, where exactly this narrative voice is coming from, but that's all I'll say for now. Oh, okay. So first, a little bit of a little bit of backstory. You were the very first person to ask us to be beta readers. And this was the first and last book that we ever attempted to beta read. <laughs> so, <laughs> some listeners uh, have heard us discuss that we have discovered that we are not very good beta readers. But for those out there who aspire to be beta readers in the future, what are some of the best pieces of input that you received in creating this novel? Let's see. Um, generally, you know, as an English teacher, I'm I'm fine. I, I don't need too many line edits about word choice or punctuation or things like that. Um, what I tend to look for is larger scale feedback of does the pacing flow? Does the plot make sense? Is it interesting? Are you bored? Um, and that's where reading it to students really helps because you can see when they're bored. Um, <laughs> But one of one of the better pieces of feedback I got is that during Gwendolyn's manic episodes, 
um, some of my readers were just like, I don't get this. Why is she being so annoying right now? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like, she keeps making stupid decisions and she's not acting like herself. And I was like, well, yes, that's on purpose. And (laughs) people weren't picking up on it. So I was like, so I need some sort of really clear cue because if adults aren't picking up on it, then the kids won't either. Um, So believe it or not, sometimes I'm too subtle. And I just, this idea that how the fairies glow and that she was kind of becoming more and more like them. And they're kind of the ultimate depiction of manic energy and lack of control. And so I just had this idea that she would start glowing uh, in her manic episodes when she was too full of energy and was getting out of control, um, which acted as a really handy downside to her magic so that she does have some limits on what she can do. Not that... um, not that she is limited in what she can do, but the more she does, the more out of control she gets. So she has to put limits on herself. And that really, really helped kind of get that point across, um, tweaking that so that she does visibly glow when she's in her manic episodes. So you know, oh, she, this is weird. She's acting different and she's glowing. <laughs> no, that's a really good example, actually, of, yeah, of using that feedback and, and growing it. That's really cool. We, um, we just, unfortunately, we failed at, at, at beta reading, just didn't have the time to really put the energy into it. But it's a, it's a cool pursuit. It really is. And I'm, I'm glad that that, um, that worked out so well. Yes, and don't worry about it. I'm not a great critique partner either. In fact, I have some chapters I need to read myself. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, because I definitely found that actually beta reading the first third or so of this novel, you know, a couple of years ago is what kind of made me realize that I I don't like being hypercritical to works. Like I definitely like to pick it apart and find the things that are great about it. And finding the negatives is not as much fun for me. I I think that that's very difficult to find someone who is comfortable saying, okay, this is not good. (laughs) And, and, and I think, and I, and I appreciate that of beta readers. And, And it sounds like that's kind of what you look for as well. Yes, uh, someone who's not afraid to sling some red ink. (laughs) (laughs) And it is two very different experiences to take a finished work and sort of critically analyze it and even point out flaws, but uh, to read it as a, it's a concrete thing and this is the world and this is what happened and these are the characters and it's it's really real versus reading a draft where you know that anything can change and it's all really malleable and it's it kind of lacks the the reality of a finished product and so it's two very different reading experiences um it's the difference between like baking and eating it's <laughs> <laughs> a good example some people might want to eat and be food reviewers but they don't necessarily want to help you cook <laughs> Or clean. (laughs) Yeah, for that matter. Yes. Oh, so much cleaning. (laughs) Entire Excel spreadsheets of exactly how many words I need to cut from each chapter and just line by line taking out a few words here and there um, until you've cut down the book by about a fifth. Oh, my. Yes. It was either that or chop out three or four entire chapters, and I didn't have any I could get rid of. No. So that actually makes me think about the chapter numbers. Where did that come from? <laughs> oh, again, it was all just the fairies and fairy fun and this idea that um, 
you know, time is so fluid there. And also uh, the the narrator's voice and the kind of that cheeky wittiness of the narrator and just kind of the desire of the whole book that even though I'm playing in conventional worlds and tropes, it's a really postmodern self-awareness where nothing is off limits to, to play with or tweak or um, make fun of. <laughs> And so it drove the copy editors nuts when they're going through it. And I showed them the table of contents. I was like, no, this is, this is what the table of contents looks like. There's four chapter fives. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Throw out the rules. That makes it so much more fun, too. Um, so uh, another question that I wanted to get to, well, it's not really a question, actually. But before we wrap up is I would love to hear some of these teasers you were mentioning. Sure. Um, let's see if I can do them without. Is this before or after the spoiler warning? <laughs> we can put it. We can put it after the spoiler warning. Yes. Enjoying the show? Please like and subscribe on iTunes. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Genre Junkies, and don't forget to visit the website genrejunkies.com. Um, so, you know, I don't give away to, uh, my secret, secret stuff. Um, but at the end of this book, she, Sparrow and Starling go off to try and find her parents and she's lost her parents. And, uh, she's just, she's left at home alone in the city where everything has changed. Um, you know, the Mr. Men are there to preserve the status quo. And she has very literally disrupted that on purpose. Mm. Um, and so the, as the books have been growing, it's kind of been shifting away from middle grade uh, on purpose um, because I wanted it to be as part of that transitional age period. And so the third book is very much in the YA territory. And it's been, so there's a two to three year time gap. Oh my. Right. And this entire time, um, the main, and I don't, again, this is just, was the first idea I had and it was, it's just perfect that she's been living on her own for two to three years. Um, but can't let anyone know that she's on her own or she'll be sent to the home for unclaimed children. Oh no. Yes. So this idea that not only is she having to kind of deal with the struggles of growing up and becoming like a real full on teenager, she's had to also sort of become a parent and learn how to, how to pay bills and things. Um, and she's been, uh, making a living as a writer under her parents' names. <laughs> <laughs> clever, clever. Yes. And so, you know, she's developed um, more friends at the school and has these deeper friendships. And the city has grown in imagination. And, um, you know, so there's so much fun to be had with the Home for Unclaimed Children, um, which eventually, you, I mean, you have to go visit that. <laughs> you can't just plant that and leave it. Right. <laughs> um, but there's also... Looking at, you know, I had the real challenge was looking at the city and like, well, how does a city change when you completely uh, revamp society like that? What would be the realistic implications? So I just kind of looked at modern society and looked at periods of just giant artistic explosion and social change. And so it's kind of, there's this mix of like the 20s and the 60s in there. And there's definitely people who resist the change and wish things would go back to the way they were. But there's also these sort of like underground imagination speakeasy parties where everyone shows up and has art and fashion and does poetry and stories and music. 
Um, and so there's definitely more of that kind of twenties flapper vibe going in there that I'm having a lot of fun with. Um, and then also vampires in space. <gasps> oh, I That's like two, two separate things, not vampires <laughs> in space. <laughs> I like all of those things you named. That sounds yeah, very so finding exciting. more fun worlds for her to jump around to. Yeah. And kind of exploring the changes in her own world too. I like that. Yeah. And so, and then really getting into how these relationships are different when you're 15 or 16. I definitely have some, some student advisors where I'm just like, so what's hard about being you at this age? (laughs) And they're like, Oh, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, someone has asked me. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you back on the show. We cannot wait to read everything that you, that you release. We cannot wait to see what happens to Gwendolyn next. Um, And it's just been such a joy. Yes. Thank you so, so much for joining us and for giving us Gwendolyn. Oh, you're very welcome. I can't wait to hear your review. Okay, welcome to the spoiler section. We were just uh, talking. We all hope that you heard Stitch's like little solo she she gave into the mic there. She really wanted to let her opinions be known in this episode. She very much likes Gwendolyn Gray as well and wanted everyone to hear it. <laughs> Well, you know, producers, they they sometimes do that. They just kind of like butt in when you don't want them to and talk, you know. I, it, <laughs> I feel a little called out. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. <laughs> um, so anyway, Gwendolyn. Gwendolyn. Can we go right into the mental health aspect of this novel? Sure. So I picked up pretty early on what B.A. was going for with Gwendolyn having, um, well, at first I thought that she was struggling with depression and anxiety, but pretty, pretty close, you know, pretty, pretty soon thereafter, I realized, oh, she, she's actually dealing with, with being bipolar. And I will admit at first I was concerned because we've discussed this before. It's my own little thing, but I sometimes, uh, I sometimes have a problem with stories that deal with uh, deal with mental issues as a reason for someone's power or as a reason for someone's. Oh, of course. Yeah. I have a huge, huge problem with that as well. Or like it's something that's magically solved or yeah, we've touched on that on the show before. And I, I am so happy and I don't know if proud is the right word, but but just so, so happy that this was a part of her. This was who she was. And yes, some of it is because of the events that have happened in the book, but it's not what her power comes from. It's not why she's special. It's just who she is. Uh, I agree. I, I think it was wonderful, wonderful representation. I mentioned in our interview, I'm, I have bipolar disorder and uh, so does BA. And so it's, it's an own voices feeling. And I'm so excited that like mental health is becoming something that we talk about in fiction, especially, you know, our genre fiction that we love. And it's being explored and, you know, kind of not something to be afraid of and shared. And, you know, because once somebody steps forward and they're like, hey, I'm dealing with this, then it makes other people be like, hey, I've got a thing too. (laughs) Or, you know, it just kind of brings everybody out into the light. And it's a really 
powerful and important thing. And I think it's especially great to start with the the kids. Like if there's middle schoolers and young adults reading this and, you know, get people used to it because I, you know, like I'm in my 30s and <laughs> I didn't start to be even a little bit comfortable talking about my mental health until my late 20s, even though I've been dealing with it since I was a teenager. So it's it's really inspiring to me. I think it's really important for books that are, you know, targeted towards middle grade that are read by children who are 10, 11, 12, 13. I'll just keep counting, I guess, but <laughs> you're really good at I know. Yeah, I it's you know, I worked really hard at it. Uh, I think it's really important for there to be books for kids that show real psychological mental struggles and show real pain in characters. And that can sometimes be missing in in those kind of books. Uh, you know, I, I, t- I talked about in the non-spoiler section about this reminding me of a golden compass. And that's part that that's part of the reason why the Golden Compass, particularly when it gets to to the second book, The Subtle Knife, but even the first book, Lyra is very pained. She has a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. Yes. And that was really important for me at the time that I read those books to read that in a character who was, you know, around my age, maybe a little bit older at the time, who is dealing with those same things, because that's not a conversation that is easy to have with a middle schooler. Right. It's And as I said, too, it's not a conversation I think it's easy to have with anybody at any age. But yeah, meeting a character like these like these gals <laughs> in these books that carry trauma, and especially in Gwendolyn's case, um, you know, some PTSD stuff going on, too. And it's like, it's okay. She's still brave and funny and, you know, awesome. But she she's been through some stuff. And it's like, that's that's okay, because people can be all of those things. And um, really, really impressed, as I said earlier, too, with the gender, with the, you know, all this cool stuff he's doing with that. I, I was so happy. It all happened so organically, you know, getting, you know, kind of this taste of human sexuality and gender issues. And of course, a big, big part of that is he cut off her hair. That was really I, I don't know how, as an author, he did that. I would not have had the strength. I, you know, I really had to check myself because I was like, oh, my God, she has like this incredible hair. This poor girl lost her hair. And then I was like, but it's OK. It's just her hair. Like, you know, you you find yourself kind of like like clocking yourself to be like, why am I so affected by this? And it's, you know, from our our conditioning and society and everything. But to be like, she's still her. She's still amazing, just with less hair on her head. It, it's hard for her because really her hair is the first thing that made her different. And where, you know, at the beginning, just like, you know, just like Every kid didn't want to be different than everybody else, but it became kind of that defining feature that started it off like, I'm not like everybody else. Right, right. And then she lost it. Yeah. And it's like the one thing that she that she really identified with herself was her hair. And it's one of those things that we as the readers, like I identify Gwendolyn with this, with this crazy 
you know, frizzy, out of control, red hair is this you know these these massive curls yeah yeah um no it's so true and it's so funny because it's like you know your your physical body is important and especially at that age you're learning about your physicality and stuff too any age though but um i think it's especially interesting in the context of these youngsters that you're like okay i have these physical attributes and you know there's things about you that make you feel good about yourself but then it also is going to make you question like but without that physical attribute, who am I? And that's a really important introspective conversation to have. Uh, by the way, on the cover of this book, our little Gwendolyn did have a glow up. Oh, no, no she's got She's got the fiercest like eye going on. And as uh, somebody who loves makeup, I think it's really, really fun. And I love that fairies have like fun with makeup and like clothes. <laughs> I, I love the way that she taught them about clothes and got them like interested in clothing. Yeah. That was that was very funny to me. And the way that she that Tanya is just like super excited, like, see, I'm I'm learning. Look at these great clothes that I just made. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really funny. Um that kind of leads us into my favorite character, which is Syria. Syria is awesome. I loved her so much. She's um really kick-ass female mentor that can sometimes be lacking in a fantasy book and you actually kind of get double mentor double training scenarios in this book because of puck robin which we'll get to in a minute mm-hmm. but everybody loves a training montage especially in a fantasy novel you're the best around <laughs> but um syria was so so cool and so dry and sarcastic and witty and spunky and spirited and you know doesn't have all the answers isn't perfect by any means but is still an admirable person to kind of guide Gwendolyn in this world and not only that but she act- acted as a bit of a mentor towards the reader as well because she's the one who really you know hammers home and introduces the idea that all of these really are stories yes and you know a little bit of of for wall breaking when she's talking about okay so what kind of genre are you from you know (laughs) the idea that she is from the dystopian section is brilliant yeah and it's like okay so i'm trying to figure out what kind of story yours is because there are tropes and when those tropes are broken she comments on them and in 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 very real and appropriate ways that I, i really i like the way that that character you know both mentors gwendolyn and us as the reader yeah no i totally see what you mean it's really funny it's um and it's kind of that cheeky almost like the narrator does kind of breaking the fourth wall down a little bit for us and i also love that syria is um she's an inventor and that's super cool and she you know everybody thinks she's a man you know classic classic story of a lot of great women out there um but I admire that because I'm not a mechanical person. And so to see a a female character that has that, like, you know, I make things and I see how things fit together. I always really admire that in a woman. (laughs) (laughs) So I know your favorite character is Puck Robin. Oh, 
Absolutely. Puck Robin, Robin Goodfellow, they're an amazing character. I, I was not anticipating the the gender fluidity of that character, and I will never see that character any other way. It's perfect. When, when it comes to Shakespeare and, and everything else, mm-hmm. Puck will forever be Robin in this book. Yes, yeah. Beautiful trickster and rhymes are hysterical, especially when other characters are clocking them on, hey, that's... Uh, you know, it's not the right number of syllables or that didn't rhyme. And 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 when they actually say something that's not part of the rhyme, yeah. just as sort of like that last wink before they disappear, yep. it's it it made me just burst with joy every time. Another really witty, fun character too. Um, so I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't talk about Mr. Zero, or as I like to call him, Lil Gideon. <laughs> Oh, I will never be able to visualize him any other way. So, of course, he did not stay Lil Gideon from Gravity Falls in my mind. But when he was first introduced, that is who popped into my head. (laughs) I love Lil Gideon. He's my, well, he's not my favorite character in Gravity Falls because it's also Mabel and Waddles and Lil Gideon. And of course, as you know, like mere sentences later, Mr. Zero was not... (laughs) (laughs) Little Gideon in my mind, but I couldn't help it. That was like the first thing that popped into my head. But great, great depiction of that villain and turning that on its head. It's a really good concept of really seeing what the other side of what Gwendolyn could have been was if they had gotten hold of her. We love a villain that's the hero of their own story. Yes. And I mean, that's all your best villains. And Mr. Zero is like that. Like, he's doing his thing. And I got vibes of the spinner. Oh, yeah. So there's actually, a, you know, and I think, and obviously it's completely, um, unintentional but i get a lot of similarities as far as how i feel from these two books i mean from the hazelwood from the hazelwood and from this like the hazelwood is much darker oh oh yeah i mean they're totally different yeah yeah but the things that i i love in books i get from both of these you're right he he is kind of spinnerish yeah and um just kind of like it's hard to put it in the context of black white as much as you want to you know like good bad negative positive it's like it's it's a lot more complicated than that i have to say that i i'm very happy that mr five and mr six are different than the others because i love those characters and i would not be okay with them just being like her mom and dad (laughs) you know like okay now mr five and mr six are gone no mr five and mr six are eternal (laughs) you they're your otp their dialogue is so good it's very it's (laughs) cracking And I'm very interested to hear more about Blackstar and what his whole deal is. Really, really interesting concept of how Blackstar, how he looks, how he operates, the world he's from. It's really kind of genre mashy in a cool way. Like, you know, there's like this noir side of it that was really strong for me. So going back to Mr. Zero, that whole final sequence in the tower is very like Final Fantasy big boss battle scene. Mm -hmm. It was done so 
epically. I was I was sweating, and it's like, and there was like, and there was like different stages of the battle of the sweat. Well, no, there's different stages of the battle. You know how like you you beat the big boss, and then the big boss says, "Well, that's not my final form. This is my final form," and it and it just kept progressing further and further, and the stakes kept getting raised more and more in that single battle. It was frightening. It was it was anxiety inducing, mm-hmm. and it was really really cool. That was a great um great battle and it's one of those where as the reader you're you know you kind of start to do this math in your head where you're like okay here's where we are here's how many pages are left and you start to at least I do anyway I start to really think like okay so is this or this going to happen is this or this going to be the outcome and um it's very anxiety inducing in the best way I do the same thing when I watch a horror movie when you know you're nearing the end and you're like okay the movie is seemingly over why isn't the movie over like you know there's still something more to go to the story so your mind starts trying to fill in the pieces i am heartbroken that this book ended with a cliffhanger i'm excited that it ended very, with a cliffhanger I'm angry. <laughs> but i'm 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 heart i'm i'm heartbroken that's I, an author should do that they should make you angry heartbroken we're going through the stages of grief right now i am on anger <laughs> I I cannot I cannot accept cannot accept this like unacceptable her, her parent and you know at the beginning of the book when when he has when when the narrator is talking about she had no idea how long it would actually be until she got to tell them that she's sorry I didn't realize we were talking about more than one book B A come on <laughs> like can can a girl get a novella like. <laughs> Um, it's a great place to end it off too because it's a lot of promise. It's a lot of stakes. It's, you know, kind of Sparrow and Starling being like, hey, hey, it's cool. Like, like we got this, you know, like there's not this feeling of like her friends have abandoned her because I have like, oh, I hate that feeling. I mean, sometimes I like it, but I generally hate that feeling at the end of a book where there's going to be another one. And it's like, is everyone like... Are they still like, do they still love each other? Are they still friends? Like, are we still all cool? Are we cool? You know, but it was very much like, nope, like, we're still a gang. We're still a family. Um, and we're going to help you, but this is, this is going to be big. And I'm much happier with the way that, the way that Sparrow and Starling are leaving her this time. Same. The first book was cruel heart it was cruel, cruel and, it, and it broke my heart <laughs> because i i felt like they were going to be gone forever i i felt like there is this kind of feeling that they never even existed and this one it's like okay they're still leaving and i'm still heartbroken but they're leaving for her they're leaving of their choice they're going off to try and save her parents and chasing them off until she can you know meet up with them again and you know too this is um a kind of we just recently had this discussion with the hazelwood books but you know one of our favorite themes of what is sentience and what is human and what does it mean to be alive and um you know what does it mean to be one that creates something a spinner a God, a storyteller, um, and I'm I'm happy that we still got some of that in this book, and I'm happy that <laughs> Gwendolyn got a little clocked on it too. At one point, I was like, "Ooh," <laughs> I, but I liked it because it's it's really big questions that I think is going to come up in later books. 
and there's there's a strong message of when it comes to creation, especially, you know, coming from BA as an author, once you create something and you put it out there in the world. Is it yours? It's no longer yours. It's not yours. You, you don't really have control over that anymore. It, you know, that character is their own person now. Belongs to the people. Exactly. And that's kind of a subtext of that whole imagination, creativity thing that I really appreciate. I I like how, you know, the first book definitely talked about the power of words and the magic in, you know, once upon a time and what if, but I like in this book how it really became power words for her. It really became the magic words. And it was always done in a way that that made sense. Like she recognized the power of it. She used it as a power word, but it still was like a, it wasn't like she was saying abracadabra, make this happen. Right. It is just, this is how she uses her imagination. Imagination. All right. We're starting to get a little loopy and I think we're going (laughs) to have to, we're going to have to cap this. We're going to have to end this somewhere. So how many figments out of five are we scoring this book? I'm going to give her, (laughs) I'm going to give her Gwendolyn Gray here. I'm going to give her four figments out of five. I was very, (laughs) very happy. It's hard to not like just get really like alliteration with it um, when he starts to but um definitely a happy happy gleaming four figments for miss gwendolyn uh, very proud of her very proud of ba very proud of the world that they've created together and the life this character has taken on um i think that this deserves a huge wide readership it's such a delightful series and i can't wait to see how gwendolyn continues to grow up up and the challenges and the dilemmas that she's going to face and the the moral things she's going to come up against. And I'm really excited because it's all just going to be really beautiful and just gorgeous, wonderful world building. And it's it's emotional stuff. Well, for me, since B.A. took away her parents and then ended the book, I'm giving it no figments out of five. <laughs> no, but but seriously, I love this book. Uh, I am going to give it, I'm giving it five figments out of five. Good, good. I, I love this book. And The Marvelous Adventures of Gwendolyn Gray, the first book. I have bought more copies of that book than any other book ever yes, because I've given it, we've given it to, to many people and I will be giving this book to all of the same people. On top of that, because of the mental health portion of this and Robin. And Robin. I Syria. This book has convinced me to give both books to even more people. Um, I agree, and you know, I don't want to say like ugh, I don't know. It's so it's so funny because you know everything is so when we make these judgments and we you know we give our reviews, it's very how we're feeling right now. Yes, and sometimes things change and evolve. And but I have to say, I think as much as I loved the first book, I I liked the second one even more. I just think it was like, 
it's such a wonderful expanding off of a great book with a really, really powerful follow-up. And that's so cool. I, I don't I can't say that I liked it better than the first. I feel like I do right now because I'm so close to it. Mm. But the first still to this day means a lot to me. That that book is just so joyful and, and so fun and Poignant. yes. Yeah. So but I think that this is this is a great expansion to the world and to the story and to the character that I think I don't know what appeal we gave uh, Marvelous Adventures or I gave Marvelous Adventures, but if we gave that mass, this book makes that book and it combined even more of a mass appeal book. And for that alone, I'm giving it five out of five. Mass squared. I agree. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again to B.A. Williamson for being on our show, not once, but twice, and for talking with us. We really appreciate him and his work and his words, and we appreciate you, our dear listeners and readers at home. So for Genre Junkies, I'm Sandra. I'm Scott. Please keep reading past your bedtime. You know, another thing, speaking of imagination. Imagination. <laughs> <laughs> Impossible, sorry. Uh, 